Um, this is our last shiur on Baba Kama. Next week, we're going to do a shiur p'ticha, an introductory shiur to Baba Metziah. We have to keep in mind, as we finish Baba Kama, that really it's all one masachet, nazikin. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we're the themes are not the same, but the continuity is pretty obvious. The sequencing is pretty obvious from the end of Baba Kama, which really ends with torts, with the topic of theft, uh, to Bava Metziah, which is going to begin with disputes over ownership of items, uh, and then go to Aveda, et cetera, and we're going to move into a lot of other areas of contract law, et cetera. Oh. Now, I want to, uh, but tonight we're going to take a look at a most curious character, uh, and perhaps uh, the most reviled character in the community, uh, and that is the Moser. And a Moser literally means someone who hands things over, hands something over. Uh, and we're going to start with this piece from the Gemara, which will be what we start with tomorrow. Uh, Ravuna Bar Yehuda, we'll, we'll, this will be in the middle of the first section we do tomorrow. Ravuna Bar Yehuda, equal of Evioni. Um, so here's the story. Ravuna Bar Yehuda comes to this place. Atalakame de Rava. He then came to Rava. Amarle Kluma Sebaliadcha. So it sounds like as Ravuna Bar Yehuda, um, who was a student of Rava, had been traveling. And then he came back and Rava asked him, Did you have any interesting cases come before you? Amarle Yisrael Shan Suhu Goyim, Veheram Amon Chavero Bali Liadi Vechiav Tive. Now, the, the context, as we're going to see tomorrow in the opening Mishnah, the Mishnah that's going to open the Sugiah, is what happens when somebody steals land and then the, um, the, uh, the um, strong-arm guys take it from the thief. Can the thief then turn around to the guy he stole it from and say, good luck, you get it from them. And that dovetails into this. So he said, what was the case that you had in front of you? Yisrael shan asuhu goyim amon chavero bal yadi v'chiyavtiv. I had a case where there was a Jew who was forced by non-Jews, and the, what was he forced to do? Show them where somebody had some valuables. And he showed where another Jew was keeping his valuables, and they took it. And I had the case, and I said, he's chayab, meaning the Moser, the informant, who was acting against his will here, had to pay the victim for his loss. He said, you should reverse the ruling, essentially. The Tanya, this is Rava speaking, So the ruling that we have in the Brighta is that if you point out where that money is and the going go and take it, and so your fellow Jew is now out the money, you are exempt. But if you actually got involved and got it for them and handed it over, then you're chayav. Which, well, what's the, the rationale behind that distinction before we go any further? Well, so it sounds like you, whether or not you made a kinyan on the, um, on the property. Perhaps. I don't know that we need to get that legalistic. Keep it on a simpler level. Well, well we, the the Jew, the, yeah, the Jew, the the Jew, uh, in being coerced initially, was 
cannot be held accountable. Whereas if he's if he does it through his own free will, he can be accountable. It's not free will. The difference here is not free will versus coercion. Both of these cases are coercion. But the, the non-Jew comes up and says to you, put a gun to your head and said, you better show me where somebody has $1,000 worth of gold. And you tell him that guy has it in his basement, you're patur. But if you go to the basement and you get it out and give it to him, you're chayav. So what's the difference? The physical act. So the in other words, what was did. missing in the first case that made you exempt? Oh. No action. It was I, just I don't, I don't see. I don't see the difference. You you help the you help the person find the money. Right. Except in the yeah. first case, remember this is. We're not saying you should do this, and we're not saying you're a good guy. You're not going to get sleazy for doing this. Right. But you, but you're not held liable for it, and let's see why. Because all you did was, in the first case, all you did was dibur. You spoke, and dibur is not considered a maaseh. Whereas when you went over there and took it out of the guy's basement and handed it over, you did a maaseh. And I'm not going as far as Sherwin wanted to go and may, say you made a kinyan on it. Although I, I get where you're going, coming from, which is the fact that you did an mm. action. You'll see that develop. Watch here. Mm. Amar Raba. So now Raba adds added something in, which is going to um, which is going to support perhaps Ravuna Baryuda's ruling. He says that if you voluntarily showed it, they didn't come up to you and said, we know that that Jew is hiding stuff, show us where it is, but he, they, that they said, show us where somebody's hiding stuff, and you said, oh, that guy's hiding it. The minute that you volunteered that information, it's as if you handed it over by Yad, and you're chayav. Okay, so now let's see a couple of cases. And by the way, what's what's alarming about this, we've talked about this a number of times, is that in certain masechtot, we have a, a real paucity of case law. We, we have very few times when it says there was a particular person and they did this and the rabbi ruled that way. Remember I told you the best way to understand the halacha, to know the halacha is not what the rabbi said, but what the rabbi did. Meaning not how he said we should rule, but how he actually ruled. And so, for instance, in Masechet Brachot, we have tons of stories when it comes to Birchat uh, Mazon and when it comes to Seder uh, HaBrachot, when it comes to Tefillah and Kriyat Shema, lots of stories. And the stories are very helpful. They're illuminative. And we, and each nuance in the story pushes the halacha in, in perhaps a slightly different direction. Um, you even see in Balakama that there were certain areas that didn't have a whole lot of stories. And when it came to Gzela, we've had no end of stories since the beginning of the ninth parak. And so what's I find alarming is when it comes to the Dean of Moser, there is just a, a long string of stories. We're not going to see even half of them. But you will see where we're going. Hahu Gavra. So there's a story about a guy, the Ansu Goyim. Again, the Goyim forced him, and we assume that the, that they either have a sword to his neck or they have family members in a hostage, something like that. The Achvi Achamra Derav Mari Berav Pinchas Berav Chista. All right, um, and he showed them where he had this guy had his donkey. Amrule Dari Ve'amte Bahadan. So they said, lead it with us. He came to Ravashi, and Ravashi actually exempted him. Now, this is odd because this guy had his hands in it. This guy helped him, helped him move the donkey. 
So the students challenged Ravashi about his ruling. How could you say that? We have the Brayta that says that if you actually handle the thing itself, you're Chayav. So he put a, 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 uh, a caveat on that rule, which is, that's if they didn't stand you over it originally. The minute that they've stand, stood you over it originally, it's already burned up. What that means is, if they come to you and say, let's start with the first case, they come to you and say, one of you guys, or you guys all have a lot of money, show me where somebody has $1,000, and you volunteer where the place is, that's one thing. If they say, we know that guy has $1,000, show us how to get into his house, that's very different. You go and go into his house and get it out, that's Nasav and However, here we have a caveat, which is, if they come over and say, there it is, you go get it, then it's essentially already gone. Because if they know where it is, they can see it, and they just want you to get your hands dirty to implicate you, or because they need your help for whatever reason, then you're not liable because the, in the language of the it's already burned up as it is. Meaning it's already gone. So, Eitavei Rabbi Avahu Ravashi. This, by the way, should not be Rabbi Avahu. That doesn't make sense. Rabbi Avahu Ravashi to be talking. And different countries, different times. I don't know if anybody is in the Gemara better Girsa, or it's a different Rabbi Avahu. Amarlo Anas. Let's say that the Anas, the the coercer, says Hoshitli Pkiya Amir Zet, Oeshkol Anavim Zet. So he says, go hand me that uh, that um, uh, bunch of material, or go hand me that cluster of grapes. Voshitlo Chayav, and you hand it to him. You're Chayav. Now, that sounds like the opposite of what we just said. Because the guy's already identified. He's standing over it. He says, I want your help in, to, in taking this. Right? So now, So if you look at the language carefully, you'll see this is a case where the Anas is on the other side of a river. And it, it, Stop and think about it for a second. Here's the Anas who wants some grapes. Why would he say to you, grab the grapes? Let him grab the grapes himself. It must be that he's on one side of the river, you're on the other side next to a guy's vineyard, and he says, get me those grapes. Now, at that point, you could also ask the question, where's the coercion? If he's on the other side of the river, where's the coercion? So right, you can you say no. how we could how we could get that? Well, in those days, you can just walk away. Nobody... So my, my question is, where's the coercion? So help me, there is coercion here. Maybe he okay. has something of yours, or he'll... Right. So maybe he's holding my family captive, or maybe he's got a reputation for violence, and I know that if I don't do something, he's going to come after me. Or he's holding, he's holding a weapon against you. But he's on the other side of the river. They don't have weapons that are going to work with that. Right? <laughs> that's, my, that's my point. I, no, you, you, Rabbi, Rabbi, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you missed the last issue of Law and Order on TV. You missed it. It's, it's, uh, it's obvious. Okay, but in the meantime, this is back then. And they didn't have weapons that would that would uh, hurt you on the other side of the river, but there is some other element of coercion. But my, my the point I'm trying to bring out is we may have to reevaluate how we define coercion now, because coercion that we think of normally would be in their case a sword to the throat. Either you do this or I kill you. And here you can't say that because on the side of the river, so there must be a broader sense of it. But whatever it is, we'll leave that for a different time. 
But now we're, the argument is that you're, remember we said, if the guy, this is the argument with the donkey, if they identify what it is, they point to it and they say, go get that for me, then you're patur, because it's already gone. So how come in this case you're chayav? The answer is you're on the other side of a river, which means without your help, they can't get it. Which means, by the way, again, we have to reevaluate what the coercion is here, and maybe it's a lesser coercion, and that's why you're liable. If you look at this uh, this uh, Breita or whatever it is that he's quoting, you can actually see it in the words because he said, if the guy says Hoshitli, it means to extend and hand and over. If they were standing right on the same side of the river, he would say Tain. Lahoshit often means to pass it over. And, uh, and so therefore, this is the case where they're on two sides of the river, etc. Okay. Now, um, there was um, a uh, little pecola of, uh, of material. Two guys are fighting over it. Each guy says it's mine. Now, this sounds like beginning of Mitzia. Yep. Now, this shows you how crazy people are, but we know that. So one guy went and he handed it over to the uh, to the uh, to the Sasanian official of the government as like a tax or a payment. Now, question is now what happens? In other words, is this Masira where he's handing it over to the blame? It's not true. They are not forcing anybody. And this guy is an official. He's not a independent marauder. So what's the status? The guy who handed it over could say, I can't give it over because it's mine. But Rav says he doesn't have such power because we still haven't determined who it really belongs to. So what power does he have when he's claiming it's his to say, and now that it's mine, I'm handing it to somebody else. We throw the guy in Kherim for his behavior until he brings it and they go back to Dean. means he has to go to the government, get it back, say, I gave it to you by mistake, or buy it back, or whatever, and then come back, and then we'll do the deen of who it actually belongs to. Right? We have to reverse that. Now, here's the story. As you can see, I highlighted it, because this is where things really explode. Hahu Gavra. This, by the way, gives birth to a long story. We're going to see the whole story, because it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun for us, because we're not in it. Not a lot of fun for the people involved. Hahu Gavra. There was a guy, and I do not understand the motivation for this, he wanted to point out his friend's um, um, grain uh, collection, grain harvest. Evidently, the tax farmers were coming around, and they would take, by the way, as much as they could. That's why we have the halachot in this parak that we talked about, cheating the maches, because they were, they were highway robbers. And so... This guy wanted to point it out. Maybe he wanted to get favor with the government yeah. official, or maybe he wanted to use the other guy's thing to pay off, and then he wouldn't have to get taxed. Whatever he, reason. He had, he had a grievance. He had a grievance. What? what? No, he had a grievance of some sort. A grievance against the guy. Yeah, so, but why would this, why would he do this if he has a grievance? Let him steal it himself. It's, it's a little weird. So anyhow, he but this is what he decides to do. And he, 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 he lets it be known, which is really very strange. It gets worse. He lets it be known. He says, I'm going to show that you, and it could be like Sherman says, agreements. Ah, you, you mumser, I'm going to show this to them, you know, point it out, let them get it. 
So the guy came to Rav, Rav and the notion is that both of them came to Rav. Rav said, Rav said to him, you may not do it. Don't do it. Don't show it to them. The guy says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Imagine standing in front of Rav and saying, and in your face. And I'm kind of, okay. Yati Rav Kahana Kameda Rav. Now, Rav Kahana was a student of Rav. We mentioned that this morning. Rav Kahana was a student of Rav. Rav Kahana was sitting there. He saw that this guy was about to hand stuff over. He saw something else, that this guy was being very chutzpahdik to Rav. Which means that we're not exactly sure what Rav Kahana's motivation for the next deadly move is. But watch this. Shamte Lukue Mine. He went and broke his neck. I'll say it again, so you got it. Rav Kahana went, and this chutzpahdik guy, Rav Kahana came, grabbed his neck, twisted it, and broke his neck. Right? So he killed the guy. Now, Kari Rav Ilave, Rav immediately applied the pasuk, This pasuk in Shayao, your children are lying in the streets like an antelope in a trap. Why? What's the comparison? Just like a, a, a gazelle or whatever it is, an antelope, when it falls into a trap, that's it. There's no more rachamim. You're finished. If the goyim get a hold of our possessions, that's it. You're finished. What Rav is saying is that Rav Kahana was actually right for doing what he did. He's justifying it, which means, by the way, at least in Rav's understanding, what was Rav Kahana's motivation? It wasn't the honor of Rav that was being challenged by this guy, but rather it was the act of misira, that this guy was a moser, an informant who, but remember, moser doesn't mean to inform, moser means to hand over. And the idea is that he was handing over this property to the non-Jewish authorities wrongly or to uh, to uh, some gang or whatever it might be. So he was so Jewish. What, so, so what happened? What? Bill what? He was Jewish. The person that he broke his and All three people are Jewish. Rob's Jewish, Rob Connor's Jewish, and this dead guy's Jewish. Okay. Take Kaddish, you can get it. Go ahead. So now, now Amrali Rav Kahana. So Rav, so Amrali Rav Kahana, to read it right, Rav said to him, Kahana, my student, Ad Haid Nahavu Parsoi. What he means is up until now, the Parthians ruled. They weren't so bothered if in our court we executed somebody. They wouldn't be too bothered. And that's how we could explain what happened to this guy. Which means, by the way, and we're going to revisit this, that in Rob's estimation, killing this guy may be, may be a legitimate Beitin response to him, which we have to explore why. And he uses this term, which is not very clear. He says, now there's Greeks. It's not Greeks, it's the Sasanians. At the, near the end of Rav's life, there were the Sasanians overthrew the Parthians and became the reigning emperor, empire there. They are not so easy going about this. They're going to get upset about the fact that the word comes out that we killed somebody in court. The Amri Maradin Maradin. They're going to say, you guys are murderers. Murder, that's the word. Kum Sakla already Israel. So the rest of the story has nothing to do with Moser, but just it's a great story, a well-known story. Again, like I said, to us it's entertaining. People involved, it's deadly. Um, so he said, go make Aliyah. Now remember, in in this is the third century, in the middle of the third century, 
the two, only two places in the world where any serious scholarship was going on was in the Galil and in Babel. There was no such thing as, you know, go to Elat and go to Egypt. And even Egypt, Alexandria was not a scholarly community. Go to Greece, Byzantium, nothing going on there. These are the two choices. So he said, go make Aliyah, which, by the way, Israel was under whom? At the time, in the year, let's say, 240? The Romans. 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 So the Romans and the Sasanians aren't getting along, and there's no extradition. So that'll be fine. So he said, Kum Sakla already Israel, go make Aliyah. The Kabil Allah, you have to be accept upon yourself to Lotik Shilu Rabbi Yochanan Shevashnin. Because he knew Rav Kana was sharp. Rav knew by reputation, he knew that his younger colleague, who was the Mara Da'atra in Eretz Yisrael, was Rabbi Yochanan. So Rav Kahana was clearly going to go to sit at Rabbi Yochanan's feet and be a student. But he said, you have to accept upon yourself that you will not ask questions, challenge his rulings for seven years. Because the idea is that Rav Kahana would create a great disruption if he came there. Azil So what happens? Rav Kahana gets to Tveria and he finds Resh Lakish. You know Resh Lakish, Rabbi Yochanan's brother-in-law, Rabbi Yochanan's Talmud. Diyati become a sayim mitivta diyomal rabbanan. It's an interesting insight into the baby drash in Tveria. At the end of the day, I don't mean the British end of the day, I mean like five o'clock. Um, Rabbi uh, Rosh Lakish was reviewing with this <coughs> all the learning of the baby drash that day. They were going over it. Amarlohu Rosh Lakish, hecha amrulei, right? Amarlohu Rosh Lakish hecha. Right, so he he came in and he said, "Where's Rishlakish? Amrule Amai." He said, "They said to him, Where, why are you looking for Rishlakish?'" Amarlo haiku shiva haiku shiva hai peruka hai peruka. So Rav Kahana said, because I have this question, he didn't ask Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan was already home. He said, because what Rav Yochanan taught, I have this question, I have this question, I have this answer, I have this answer, because he had the whole shear already wrapped up with questions and answers of his own. So they told Rish Lakish, some guy just walked in, who's like a superstar. Rish Lakish went to his brother-in-law's house, to his Rebbe's house, and said, some guy just arrived, and this guy's a superstar. What was the way he said it? A lion has made Aliyah from Bavel. Right? A lion was a, was a term that they used to describe like the greatest, most ferocious learner in the group. So he told Rabbi Yochanan, you better bone up for tomorrow. Be very, you know, work on your studies for tomorrow because he's going to be there to challenge you. Okay. Now, um, this is another insight into the Beit Midrash is they had evidently seven rows of students, maybe more, but they had at least seven rows of students and you were put in a row based on your seniority. And so the front row was the senior guys, etc. They immediately put Rav Kahana, sight unseen, into the first row. Kamei Rabbi Yochanan, right in front of Rabbi Yochanan. Amar Shunata Velo Akshi. Rabbi Yochanan said a halacha. Rav Kahana was silent. Because remember, what did Rav Kahana accept about himself? He wouldn't challenge Rabbi Yochanan for seven years. Now, what he asked yesterday, Rabbi Yochanan wasn't there. He was just challenging what he heard in Rabbi Yochanan's name. But he didn't challenge Rabbi Yochanan. Happened again. So they moved him back. 
moved him back a row in a row until he went to the seventh <laughs> row. <laughs> he was in the last row. So Yochanan turns to Rish Lakish. The lion you talked about is turning into a fox. Amar Now says, And by the symbolism, of course, seven years, seven rows. Watch this. That God should accept it, that the seven rows I was demoted should last, should can be considered for the seven years. Meaning, I've already suffered seven years of silence by being demoted. <laughs> right? Amarli Rab. He stood up on his feet. So he said to Rabbi Yochanan for the seventh row, Can you review what you just said? He said it. And of God had a challenge. And he kept doing that until they moved him to the front row. And now he's in the front row and he's challenging him, right? Which, by the way, now establishes a beautiful relationship between Yochanan, the teacher, and now his new prize student, Rav Khan, is challenging him left and right, which is great. And now there's another piece to the puzzle, and the number seven keeps coming up in here. Rabbi Yochanan Haviyati Vasheva Bistriki. He was sitting on seven pillows. Evidently, when he was unable to answer one of the questions, he had them take out one of the pillows, like he's been demoted. And he kept saying a halacha and Rav Kana challenging him. And I guess he didn't have an answer. Until they took all the pillows out. He was sitting on the ground. Now, evidently, he had these, these pillows to sit on so that they could all see him. Now he's at their feet. I'm saying the, the, the shaming here that's going on. And he's going along with it, evidently. Rabbi Yochanan Gavra Savahave. By the, by the way, Rabbi Yochanan was an old man at the time. So remember, Rabbi Yochanan died in the year 299. So figure this this is now much later. The only problem we have with that is that Rav had died 50 years earlier. So the story, there's a little bit of disconnect, but okay. Umasar his eyes were drooping. His eyelids were drooping. We can, we, can actually, we can actually fix that, Rabbi. Just so you know, we can fix that. What? We can fix that. Okay. Well, you know. fix it. So yes. he said, He said, Now, so when I was above, I could look down. Now that I'm in their level, I need help. So he said, Lift up my eyelids. They had this little silver thing that they put in to raise his eyelids up so he could see. Um, just a second. Um, something's missing in the story. Something got cut out here. I'm going to tell it to you about Pat. Um, better yet, wait with me for one second, and we're going to take a look at it together, the Gore, because we we uh, we have to see this. I don't know why it got cut out, but we'll take a look. Uh, the Rabbi, why you're thinking? The irony is that. We actually use leaded weights in eyelids to protect the cornea when the cornea is exposed. Adaraba, which which what you're describing. In other words, if the if the if the it's a third nerve palsy, they can't close the eyelids. The uh, we put weights in to bring the eyelids down. And here, what you're describing, if I'm not mistaken, is to raise the eyelids up, which doesn't 
uh, gel with modern medicine. Right. So that's the first thing you have that doesn't gel, or <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know who does a lot of this is uh, you know Robert Levine. You know Bob Levine. Right. Okay, so we're gonna. He's I'm done gonna, a lot of these kind of surgeries. I'm gonna. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna take you right here now, and we're gonna take a look at it. And again, I I don't know where it disappeared to, but this is where we're at. All right, as you can see, I'm gonna try to get rid of this if I can. There we go, and good. Okay, so now, Chaza de parte safate. So he saw. Um, it it looked like Rabbi Yochanan was like grinning in a certain way. Sorry, it looked like Rav Kahana was smiling in a certain way. And he and he thought, he's laughing at me because I looked so strange with these things lifted in my eyes. Rav Kahana realized that Rabbi Yochanan thought that he became so upset he died. In other words, Rav Kahana looked strange. Rav Yochanan interpreted it as being Rav Kahana was laughing at him. Because there's a lot laughable here. Rabbi Yochan got so upset. Rav Kahana realized what he'd done. He got so upset he died. The Maharam. Rav Kahana died. What? Rav Kahana died. Rav Kahana died. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I got the wrong. Rav Kahana died. So the next day, the Rabbi Yochanan said to the students, "Chazitu Did you guys see what that Babylonian did? Meaning, he's trying to justify what happened. I'm really dark, eh, hockey. That's what his mouth looks like. You never saw it, but that's what his mouth looks like. So what do we do? Al-Lagabe Marta. He went into the cave, meaning the cave where Rav Kahana was buried. Right? And now, we're back here. Hadrele Achna. Chazad the Hadrele Achna. He saw there was a snake in front of the cave that would not let him in. The cave or the catacomb where he was buried. So he said, snake, snake, open up, meaning let me in, and let the master come to the student. Didn't work. Let the colleague come to the colleague. He had to lower himself. Didn't work. Let the student come to his teacher. Patachle. Now he opened it up and he let him in. He prayed and he revived Rav Kahana. In other words, Rabbi Yochanan did a little triatamitim here. I'm just reading the story. And Rabbi Yochanan immediately apologized and said, Had I known that that's the way you look, I wouldn't have gotten upset. Please get up and come and rejoin me. So watch what he says. If you can pray to God that I never die again, then I'll go with you. Why? Meaning the time came, it already came. So obviously he left him there. And so what happened on the spot, Rabbi Yochanan asked all the questions he had, and Rabbi Kata answered them all. And that's the famous saying that Rabbi Yochanan would say to his students, what you guys say really belongs to them, meaning them, meaning Bavel. Meaning Rabbi Yochanan, in Tveri, was giving credit to Bavel because he got this information from 
from Rav Kahana, and Rav Kahana was kind of the source of some of his wisdom. All right, that's the story. Now, again, the whole story starts, if you recall, with Rav Kahana killing a Moser. And that's where I want to go. I did the rest of it because the story is just so entertaining and so revealing about so many other things going on in the baby drash, the relationship between Yochanan and Rishlakish, Rabbi Yochanan and Pavel, etc. Just there's so much stuff there. But I want to get back to the Moser. And you're going to find something now looking at the background of Rav Kahana's behavior and Rav justifying the behavior and saying, had we still been in the good old days of the Parthians, then we could have let you get away with it. But now because of the Sasanians, you got to run away. That led to this. Look at this passage in the Tosefta, which is quoted in yeah. uh, in the Gemara and Avodazar Dafchavav, Hagoyim Vaharoim Behemad Daka. Meaning people who uh, shepherd, uh, you know, like lambs, etc. Umigadleha, or people who raise them. Remember, you're not supposed to raise Behemad Daka in Eretz Israel. Lomalin Velomoridin. Meaning, if they end up in a pit, you don't help them out, but you also don't push them in. What does Moridin mean? Some people say it means you don't, like, take the ladder away. Haminin, which likely refers to early Christians. Hamishubadin, which would be people seemingly who have converted out to that religion. Vahamisorot. Misorot is the plural of Moser for some reason. Moridin Velomaalin, meaning you actually push them down, you don't take them out. Meaning you actively kill these guys. Now it's the Mesorot that I'm interested in. What does Moridin Velomaalin, again, there's a machloket, whether it means you actually push them into the thing, or if they're in there, you take the ladder out so they can't get out, and then you make some sort of an excuse, like, oh, you know, I gotta, gotta go climb the roof to take care of something, and by that time they're dead. But one way or the other, either actively or passively killing a Moser is justified here. Now we're going to see a um, kind of a tempering statement here, but maybe not so much. It's a Gamoran Gittin, Dav Zayin, with the following story. And this is in the middle of several stories about people sending messages and quoting Psukim and not underscoring the, the parchment. That's why it's here. So Marukva sent a message to Rabbi Elazar, meaning Rabbi Elazar, who are, is in Tveria. There are people who bother me. I could hand them over to the local government. They're Jews who bother me. They're not just pestering me. They're actively subverting the things I'm doing. They're, they're trouble. I could hand them over to the government. Mahu. Am I allowed to do it? So he Rabbi Lazar un- took some parchment and underscored it and then wrote the following. Here's a discussion of if you copy X amount of words, when do you need underscoring? Amarti says, I'm going to keep myself from sinning with my mouth, with my tongue, and I'm going to keep a, like a roadblock on my, on my mouth. Meaning he's telling him, Shashtil, don't say anything to the government. Meaning, even though the Rasha is standing there, I'm still going to be quiet. So he sent back a second message. They're really making me crazy. I can't stand it. So he quotes another pasuk from a nearby pair, Be silent to God. 
and literally prayed to him. What does it mean? What's the drasha? Dom Lashem, you be silent, meaning don't speak out. Meaning, he will cause them to all die. You don't, you don't have to have a hand in it. Hashkem v'arevala in the Beit HaMidrash. You be, go to the Beit Midrash, you learn, and kalin me'alehen. And they'll die on their own. Evidently, the guy who was bothering him was a famous guy in Babel named Gneva, who was evidently a Talmud Chacham, a real troublemaker. And as soon as Rabbi Lezer wrote that, God acted on it, and Gneva ended up with literally a collar around him, meaning he was handed over for execution. Right? Which means, by the way, even though you have people who are really making your life miserable, and you could easily hand them over to the government, and that would get them off your back? Absolutely not. That's how severe Mesira is. Now, we've been looking at it from the perspective of two different people. One, the story of the Moser that Rav Kana killed, and now the story of a Chacham who wanted to be a Moser because of really exigent circumstances, and he was stopped from doing it. So now watch what the Rif does with this. Garcin and Megitin, the Rif and Megillah, quotes this whole story, and we'll have to go through the whole story again, and look at the end, what do we hear, from, what do we learn from this? Even if you're in trouble, and difficult, you're not allowed to hand a Jew over to the government. Doesn't matter whether you're handing him over or his property over, you're absolutely not allowed to do it, even when it's very difficult for you. Now, before Rabbi, can I interrupt you a second? So the, the the assumption is the government is a government of goyim. If it's, okay, so give me, give me, okay, sure. One, hold on a second. Is this so correct? Gonna, after I say this, send, see if you want to still ask. So one of the interesting things that happened that has happened, many interesting things that has happened in the last really thirty years, although it goes back further, is where the issue of Masira applies. In other words, a Moser, certainly in the context of living under the Romans or living under the Sasanians, was a Jew who reported another Jew uh, in a way that got him handed over to the government, either uh, his identifying his money or his life or whatever it might be to the government. That And a Moser, as we saw, is the vilest of the vile. He's somebody who you should kill. We're going to see the, that in the Psach uh, before we get up today. But um, but the, the question, because throughout most of European history, we certainly had the same attitude towards whoever the government we were living under, under their terror usually, uh, was. question is, how do you deal with that today? And the biggest area that that has become a sore point in has been in issues of abuse, is that many people uh, have cried foul when um, either neighbors, other family members, or people who worked in the school reported abuse to the authorities. And they called them a Moser, and they made a big stink about it. And, of course, that became a, a point of discussion about whether there is an Esur of Mesira, and is the guy classified as a Moser, when he hands somebody over, essentially, uh, by identifying them as a criminal. And, by the way, the same thing applies whether it whether it's a criminal in another area. But I'm saying that's a, a flashpoint where this stuff comes about. So that may be what you're talking about. 
And so um, there's there's two different considerations there. One consideration is is the um, is the are the authorities authorities that are deliberately mistreating Jews that are acting unfairly, they're acting with caprice, or is it a fair system that's also acting for the benefit of everybody and that handing somebody over is essentially eliminating a criminal? Very different story. The consensus is that reporting somebody, if there really is child abuse, is is probably an act of pikuach nefesh on behalf of the child and certainly not an act of mesira. But you understand where the sensitivity comes from. Right. The history of it. So now, if you take a look here at the Rambam, the Rambam in Hilchot Chob, the Rambam, by the way, addresses Moser in about six or seven different places in the Mishnah Torah. In Hilchot Shuva, and Hilchot Avodah Zorah, Hilchot Chobol Mazik, in Hilchot Rotzeach, in Hilchot Edim, Hilchot Tefillin, all sorts of places. All right, so here's the key passage. Asur Sor Yisrael Biad Goyim. Look at that. Very straightforward. You're not allowed to hand the Yisrael over to the non-Jews. Now, notice he's not distinguishing here between government and 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 brigands, whether it's his body or his property. Even if the guy was a scoundrel, this is the gore we just saw. Even if the guy was troubling you and making real problems for you, well, again, we don't mean just pestering. I mean really making problems for you. Anybody who hands a Jew over to the Goyim, again, his property or his, his life. And we have to figure out why property has the same stature here. Wow. That's a very severe statement. Now, I'm just going to say now, because there's no time in it for the Shi'ur, in, in the Shi'ur for this, but there, the one of the passages we're going to see in the Gemara in the next couple of days will have explain part of what the, the reasoning is to equate Gufo and Mamono. So I'll leave that as a little bit of a, a suspenseful thing, and we'll get to it. Now watch what the Ramam says. Mutar laharog hamoser bechol makom. Wow. wow. Say it again. Mutar wow. laharog hamoser bechol makom. You're allowed to kill an, uh, a moser in any place, meaning chutzlar, Yisrael, etc. Meaning, even in the 12th century, we no longer have capital punishment. Nonetheless, you can still kill a moser. I'm going to show you a story in a minute. You're only allowed to do it before he does it. Remember, what was the story with Rav Kahana? The guy hadn't done it. He was threatening to do it. And by the way, he's threatening to hand over some material. And yet he's a Moser. Even if it's something of little significance. It's like he's saying, kill me. Basically, he was, I'm claiming I'm going to go do something that you can kill me for. You know what Hatra'a is? We have it before any corporal or capital punishment. You have to give warning and tell them this is a death penalty act. And if you do it, you can be killed. If the guy is still so brazen and says, I'm, I don't care what you say, I'm going to hand him over. There's a mitzvah to kill the guy, and the closer <laughs> you do it, the better it is, meaning you, you're a zochet. And that, of course, we get from what story? That's the story of Kahana. Right? Now, 
Let's say that the Moser acted on it. We didn't stop him. The Rambam says, it seems to me you can't kill him anymore. Which means, by the way, how does the Rambam understand the permission to, for killing a Moser? So I'm going to step back a second and ask you, what would be the justification for killing anybody in a judicial or extrajudicial set, setting? What are you doing? What would be the justification for that? For killing anybody in a judicial or extrajudicial setting? Anybody? Well, if that person killed someone. So what's the justification? Punishment or prevention. Okay, so there's retribution. Retribution, deterrence. There's um, deterrence, which never seems to work. There is um there is vengeance, might be something. And there's also prevention. Now, prevention will only work if the guy's about to do it. So now, do you know of another case where you are allowed to in in in, in fact um encouraged to kill somebody when they haven't done anything yet? There's another case like this. But what's the what's the call? And not Habalagha. I'm saying even not. That's self-defense besides that. And then somebody's kill. called. What what? I'm going to kill somebody. Well, not um, I'm gonna kill somebody. It's something it's close. It's called Rodef. And the dean of Rodef, which is if you see somebody who's running, theoretically running, to kill somebody or to rape somebody, you are obligated to try to stop them. If you are able to stop them without killing them, then that you must do that. But if the only way to stop them is by killing them, you kill them. So question is now, what's Moser? If Moser is an, a subset of Rodev, or is there a parallel case to Rodev, then I understand, what the Rambam, second, I understand what the Rambam says, when he says the only time you're allowed to kill a Moser is if he hasn't done it yet. If a Rodev, let's say you're Rodev, let's say you see a guy you're running after somebody to kill him. And you run after him, and you shoot, you miss, and the guy kills the guy. Are you allowed to kill him? Absolutely not. It's far fallen. Now you take him to court and go through the whole process. When are you allowed to kill a Rodev? When he hasn't yet killed or raped or whatever, either of those two things. Right? To prevent, you're killing him to prevent. The guy may have never done a crime in his life. You're still killing him because you're preventing him from killing somebody. So if a Moser is a parallel or subset of Rodef, that I understand Rambam saying that you're not allowed to kill a Moser if he already did it. Because you're only killing him to stop him from doing it, which would mean handing somebody over to the Goyim, even handing somebody's property over to the Goyim, is considered a capital crime. But in an inverted way, that we can only kill you to prevent it from happening, but not to punish you for doing it. Now that's the Rambam. But notice his language. It seems to me you're not allowed to kill him, implies that maybe others disagree. And then watch what he says next. Unless the guy has a history of doing this. Notice his rationale. 
if this guy has a history of most being a Moser, which by the way, the most famous Mosrim in history did that. They were they were pattern serial Mosrim, if you will. Then you kill him. Why? Because he might be Moser again. Again, not for his bad acts, but for to prevent him from doing it again. And now watch what the Rambam reports. The Rambam in Cairo is reporting this. Umaasim Bacholzman he said that this happens all the time in the West. In the West, he's probably referring to Spain. You'll see the story. They kill Israel. People who have a history, have a pattern of handing over Mamon Israel, they kill them. Even though they're not maybe right now saying, I'm going to go hand it over. They've already established a pattern. They're sort of muad for this. Now notice the irony of this. And he uses the words deliberately. Take look at the irony, which is we hand over the Mosrim to the Goyim and let the Goyim kill them. Notice we're being Mosrim, <laughs> right? But that's his point. Is that this guy is putting his life? Which means there's two possible cases. One is somebody's about to and has announced it, it's clear, or somebody now has established a pattern of doing it, and now we got to prevent him from doing it again. In either case, we kill him. In either case, we hand him over to the authorities to kill him. Whatever it is we do to get to get rid of him. And notice, this is really wow. such a, a remarkably wow. different kind of thing than we're used to, and it seems to be operating outside of the system. So I want to show you two, maybe three more things that will be helpful to maybe gain some, some sense of, uh, of a picture of it. This is a famous Mishnah, meaning there's a group of women, and the Goyim came up and say, Hand any one of your, or any one of your girls over, we're going to have our way with her. If not, we're going to have our way with all of you. By the way, questions like this came up all the time in the Shoah. I want you to see this because this will raise our sense of what Mesirah is and put it in a new light. Up until now, we saw it as an act of endangering another person, and for some reason his property counts the same way, and we're allowed to stop him even if it means killing him, and in this case, the only way is to kill him, so we're allowed to kill him. It's like a mitzvah to kill him, and the first one who does it is, is earns prize for getting there first. A group of bad guys surround a group of Jewish women and say, either you hand over one girl so we can have our way with her, or we're going to have our way with all of you. They must not hand over a girl. Why? Let them all become defiled. And not to hand it over. Because what's the thing that they would be doing to save the other 30 girls from yeah. being defiled? They would be handing somebody over. Let's say it's a group of Jews. And again, this stuff happened in the show all the time. And they said, hand over one of your people, we'll kill them. If not, we're going to kill all of you. Let them all be killed. And not to do the act of Mesirah. Do you understand that our general approach, which is Pikuach Nefesh trumps everything, 
and saving your life trumps everything just went out the window. Because mm -hmm. now I'm in a group of 30 people. They're going to come up and said, hand over one of you Jews. We want to kill a Jew. And if not, we're going to attack or kill all of you. Obviously, what we should we do, we should kill them. We should. Right. Understood. But let's say we can't. The last thing we should do, which we should never do, is to hand somebody over. That act is so vile, we should not do it. But let's say they point out and say, we want that guy. Then, let's say that Plony was actually guilty of something. And they came and they said, you're hiding a criminal. Hand over the criminal, we're going to kill all of you. Kesheva ben Bichri, the story was Sheva ben Bichri's rebellion after the Yav Shalom thing. Then you can hand him over. But we don't tell them to do that. But if the other guy is not Chayav, they just want him, then let them all die and not hand somebody over. Do you hear how severe this is? Wow. Now remember, it's not because we're taking anything lightly. It's that we're saying the act of Mesirah is an, a vile act which you should prefer to die rather than be engaged in, in agreeing to hand another Jew over to, to, to the Goyim, right? Um, again, as I mentioned, the, the Moser shows up in all sorts of ways in all sorts of places in the Rambam. I want to just show you this passage from um, uh, from the Chuvot of Rabbi Yehuda, the son of the Rosh. Um, and he was asked a question about Mosrim. By the way, the problem of Mosrim exists in the time of the Gemara, you saw it with Rav Kahana, exists in the 9th century, in the 10th century, 11th century, the 12th. We have two votes from all those centuries about what to do about Mosrim. This is a problem all the time. I don't think that I've heard of any recent cases of Mosrim because there's not really such a such a you know a, 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 an environment for it. Although I wouldn't be surprised if the question came up in Soviet Russia. In any case, he quotes the Gemara. We saw that. What's Moridin? It means you put him into a pit and let him die, right? And then, what's a Moser? Meaning, handing over a Jew or his property to the non Jews, right? And watch what he says. Lomi bai hanim sar. Certainly, the guy being handed over, shumutar latzilat smol lahargo. He's certainly allowed to kill the guy who's handing him over. Lemoser ella afilu kol adam yisrael shomea migzam migazem matrebo ve'enu mekabel hatraah chayav lahargo. Any Jew who hears this guy threatening to hand somebody over should should warn him, etc. And if he doesn't accept it, etc. So I want to end by showing you the story. I want to thank Rabbi Lieberman for pointing it out to me. Um, and it is down here. Um, Hilkach, we'll pick it up from here. Yosef ben Shmuel, meaning they had an actual case. The guy has a reputation. We already know he's more than a reputation. He is a Moser. Whoever kills him first, that's good. It's his ruling. Remember, I asked, 
And according to the Rambam, it seemed like Moser was a subset of Rodef. And that's why you can only do it before he does it. This is not Rodef. Because you're obligated to step in because you shall not stand idly by your neighbor's blood. You have to step in and stop somebody who's attacking another person, even if it means killing him. With a Moser, we consider that every Jew is a target of his. That's what being a Moser is. In the case of this jerk, this terrible guy, what's it, Yosef Ben Shmuel, every Jew is a target because he hands people over left and right. And we consider every hour that he is acting as a Rodef. So we don't have to see him running. Notice, Yom Kippur Shechal Yom Shabbat is like the tip top. <laughs> even on Yom Kippur that falls on Shabbat. Now watch this. Below Od Elah, Mi Shechol Biado Lahargo, Veino Hargo. Let's say you could kill this guy and you don't. Neanash Akoma Sheaset. The blood of anybody else who gets hurt because this guy is on your hands. You're punished for everything this guy does after you kill him. <laughs> As if you did it yourself. You know that is? The Rimigash. The Rimigash, the student of the Rif, the teacher of the Rambam's father, maybe even according to some of the teacher of the Rambam, the Rimigash, brilliant 11th century. Limsor Achad Be Elisna. Elisna is Lucena, which is in Spain, that's where he studied. It was at Ne'ilah of Yom Kippur on Shabbat and he had this guy stoned. I want you to understand what this, we're talking about. There was a Moser in their community and the Rimigash ordered on Yom Kippur that was Shabbat at the end of the day at Ne'ilah to have this guy killed. Now what you get from this story is clearly how absolutely severe the issue of Messirah is, and how an area that we normally take with such tremendous stringency, the sanctity of human life, and all of the roadblocks we put up before actually executing somebody, all goes out the window here. A guy's a Moser, he's a dead man walking, or should be. And we understand, and we're going to see it in the Gemara tomorrow and the next day, why we even apply it to his property, but that's something beyond what we can do today. So what we've seen over the last hour, um, with a little bit of a speed bump in the middle to, uh, to, get, to clarify the sources, is we have seen the issue of Moser. We saw um, the story of Rav Kahana, and we went into detail just because there was so much other information there that was really illuminating. And then we saw the rule that Mosarot are, are to be killed, and then we saw the the story in Gittin and the and the Riff's observation about it, that when you have a chance to be Moser, somebody who's really troubling, you must do ab absolutely never do that, no matter what it costs you. Never be Moser. And then what we saw was uh, the Rambam's, several rulings of the Rambam, and the Rambam's own take that seemed to equate a Moser with a Rodef. And said so the only reason that a guy who was a serial Moser can be killed, even if right now he's not about to do it, is because the concern he's going to do it to somebody else. We saw that the Zichor knew the Rabbi Yehuda, the son of the Rosh, who before telling us that story with which we ended, had seemed to have a different take and said that a Moser is in a different category than a Rodev. 
Remember, a rodef, it's only when you actually see the guy running after somebody. And by the way, with a rodef, if you could trip him, if you're a sharpshooter and you can shoot him in the leg instead of in the head, you're obligated to. And by the way, you're chayav for killing him if you could do it a different way. Now, there's no way to really judge that. On the other hand, with the moser, there's no halfway with it. You kill the guy. With the moser, we don't say you cut his tongue out. Interesting thing you see in some of the Jew wrote. Maybe we should cut his tongue out. You you kill the guy. And and this is a problem that plagued Jews throughout the centuries, starting from the period in certainly under Roman uh in Roman Palestine and in Sasanian Bavel, and all the way through throughout our whole history, this has been an issue. The the convenience of people taking the 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 the, the uh, category of Moser and applying it to anybody they don't want to have to report to is a different problem that we're not going to touch on. Okay, so uh, that's the Moser. I now hand it over. Hand your evening back to you.